Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, an exit interview with Heidi Grant, the first ever civilian director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. But first, joining me is my good friend Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies to discuss part two of his multi-part series of briefs uh, on the challenges and opportunities facing the Pentagon's number one modernization priority, the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System, otherwise known as JADC2. Uh, the goal is to better inter interconnect the force and ensure uh, a resilient, or I should say more resilient, uh, network to allow commanders, no matter where they are, uh, greater connectivity, even as the adversaries try to jam, hack, or otherwise uh, undermine those networks. Uh, I should also point out L3 Harris sponsors our JADC2 coverage in our monthly JADC2 report. Uh, Todd's latest installment uh, of Battle Networks and the Future Force is Operational Challenges and Acquisition Opportunities. See, Todd, I was paying attention. Thanks so very much for joining us again. Thanks, Vago. Good to be back. Uh, indeed, great uh, to have you back on. And before we get started, Leonardo BRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. As I mentioned, L3 Harris uh, sponsors our JADC2 coverage. And Raphael USA sponsored our coverage uh, of the recent uh, Association of the United States Army's annual uh, meeting. Todd, uh, thanks uh, again for joining us. And, and the timing of your reports, not by accident, comes as the new administration uh, is hitting a little bit of a pod, pause button and reconsidering what JADC2 is and how best uh, to execute it, because it is a very, very big challenge. Uh, refresh us on what part one, you joined us a couple of months ago for part one, uh, you know, talk about those conclusions and what the key takeaways are now from this uh, second part. Well, in part one, what I tried to do was basically set up a framework uh, for how to think about all the different piece parts that make up a battle network and what should be JADC2 in the future. And the reason I did that is because, you know, what I found in talking to folks in these various offices and the services that were, you know, part of the JADC2 effort is a lot of times they were talking past each other. Uh, about what the battle network should include, what it should not include. So I laid it out as um, five fundamental elements that go into a battle network, your sensors, your communications, your data processing, your decision nodes, and then your effects, right? And it's all about, you know, you know bring it all together in a sensor to shooter kill chain, or now we're talking about it as a kill web, um, and so that's really what I was trying to lay out in the first uh, paper in this series. In the second paper, I go into, okay, how should this actually work in the future? What are the operational factors we need to be cognizant of? And then how do we organize ourselves and structure the acquisition strategy so that we can actually be effective this time around? Because this isn't our first bite at the apple when it comes to JADC2. Right. Um, and so talk, you know, you have these uh, incredibly illustrative without buttering your toast uh, unnecessarily, um, right? You, you have, a, for example, a hypersonic missile attack uh, and a couple of other scenarios that you list that actually would test uh, whatever existing networks are or actually realistic scenarios that we may have to counter. What, what, what's the way to do this? Because there are those who maintain that this is not doable or question whether the juice is worth the squeeze, right? So 
you know, A, how important is this to do this? Second, what's the right way to be doing this? Because it doesn't appear that any of the services are on the same page. Mm-hmm. And what's worse, for a program or a priority that is the Pentagon's top priority, the only way that it happens is if a Lloyd Austin is jackhammering on your head uh, on a daily basis. Although John Hyten would say that he's done a fair amount of jackhammering on this, right? And, and so is Lieutenant General Crawl. But, but sort of give us your sense on the importance and the doability of it and then how we go about doing it. Yeah, right well, so the first thing I would say is it's not a choice. We have to do it. We have to be able to integrate our sensors, our communication systems, our data processing elements. We have to be able to integrate this across domains and across services, or we will fail in the future fight. Um, you know, uh, that's just a given. So it's not a matter of if we do it, it's a matter of how long it takes us to get it right. Uh, and so we got to start with that perspective that we got to do this. Our adversaries are doing this. China is doing this. If we want to stay competitive, um, this is what we have to do to succeed in the future. Uh, and, you know, how do we go about doing it? You know, there are all sorts of technical challenges involved, but I wouldn't focus on those first. Those are solvable. Good engineers, smart engineers. We have them in our country. They can solve these problems. Our biggest threat to the success of JADC2 is actually how we organize ourselves to go about this. And the, you know, that's where I point out in the paper, we ought to learn some lessons uh, from the last time around. We used to call this net-centric warfare, <laughs> right? right. Um, and yeah, it, we're talking more data-centric now. The end result is we're trying to achieve the same thing. Integration of our forces, being able to pass data among systems seamlessly. Uh, getting the right data to the right user at the right time. Um, why didn't net-centric warfare and that whole effort 20 years ago, why didn't it succeed? There are a lot of reasons, but I can tell you, looking back at the history and having been part of it myself on the contractor side, um, you know, some things stand out. First of all, they defined the scope of what they were trying to control, what they were trying to manage way too broadly. Uh, you remember the gig, the global information grid. Well, they'd scoped the gig to include everything, all information systems across the department, including back-end business systems. Uh, well, when you do that, you've now defined the scope so broad that it's not manageable. It's not something you can come out with policies for, uh, and it's just too big to handle. Uh, you got to scope the, the problem. It's something that is manageable and addressable. And what they need to do right now is scope it to just battle networks. You know, it's great if we have interoperability uh, you know, across our medical systems and be able to pass medical records from one system to another and, and be able to tap into our spare parts inventories and things like that and training records. That's all great. We ought to pursue that, but not part of JADC2. JADC2 needs to be focused on the battle networks. And, and right now, I'm afraid they're not doing that. Um, second thing we need to learn, uh, important thing we need to learn from the previous efforts is you can't give someone responsibility for oversight for managing something without also giving them real authority. So last time, 
you know, the idea was we'll create an assistant secretary of defense for networks and information integration, and we'll stand up, you know, joint staff J6, and they're going to, you know, those offices will do oversight and they'll write requirements and policies, right, to govern nets, how we build out net-centric warfare. They came out with the, the whole net-ready KPPs, the key performance parameters that applied to all ACAT programs, um, right? Uh, lots of policies came out of ASD NII, but the end result is didn't change much. Um, and one reason for that is those offices don't have the technical expertise to understand the requirements and the policies that they're writing uh, and to know if the technology is mature enough to do what they're trying to do. So that was a big problem. You know, you issue the net ready KPPs and well, you still left scratching your head after you read them. What does it mean right. to be net ready? Um, but then the second thing is, the joint staff and ASD NII, they didn't actually have authority over the programs. Programs stayed with the services. The services controlled their budgets and their schedules. And when that's the case, the services are ultimately going to do what they want to do. Uh, if they don't like your requirements or your policy, they'll just slow the program down or which, even kill which it. Is, which is... Which is exactly what we've been seeing, right? I mean, the Navy is doing its own thing. The Air Force, at least, and the and the Army are working more closely together. And and you were part of the conversation we had earlier uh, this year about how each of the services have their own unique uh, challenges. But Todd, one of the things you're talking about is is, is culture, right? I, I talked to a good friend before talking to you, who's Navy to the core, uh, and he said to me that what we're trying to do is is like the F-35, not meant as a compliment. Uh, and he also added that it's both unnatural and unholy, right? Suggesting mm. that the problem isn't a technology problem, it's a cultural problem, right? H and how, how do we need to change that? Because I'm of a mind that whatever it is the services are doing that gets into the way, in the way of this connectivity has to be changed, right? Yes. So you, you connect what you can connect. Anything that doesn't connect and support it, no matter how dear to a particular service, has to be undone. Right. How much of this is cultural and how do we get the cultural piece of this right? Because if we don't, it's going to fail. The, the cultural part of it is huge. And I think that, you know, the comment of the person you talk to really makes the point that if you let the services go off and do their own thing, they will develop stovepipe systems and connectivity across the services, across domains will be an afterthought. Okay, uh, and that I worry is the path that we're on right now. Uh, if you want to change that, there's no easy answer. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a few options, but I can tell you, you know, I'm not fully comfortable with any of them. Uh, and the bottom line is at the end of the day, it's going to require consistent um, uh, pressure from the top down, from the secretary, the deputy secretary on down. They're going to have to ride herd uh, on DOD and the various organizations involved to make this work. But one option is to create some sort of a joint program office, a joint program executive office where you consolidate uh, these various acquisition programs. Uh, it could be multiple programs. You could cram it into one big program, however you want to do it. Um, but then you've got a single person, the program manager at the top of that, uh, that is responsible for making sure these things all work together that you will fight tooth and nail to pull these programs out from the services where they reside and force them to collaborate. That is more like the F-35 model. Okay. And, you know, we, we've seen that there were, 
you know, some less than successful outcomes uh, that came from trying to force all those fighter programs together uh, for the F-35 program. It is unnatural, uh, as, as the person you talked to said. Another option is, I would call it the missile defense agency option. It's where you go off and you create uh, an independent agency under um, USD R&E. Uh, stand up an agency for leading development of JADC2 technologies and put the programs there. Um, one of the risks there, though, is that you've got to make sure that whatever they develop gets adopted by the services. Uh, and that can be a challenge. We've seen that, you know, Valley of Death, it's a version of the Valley of Death of transitioning things from other independent agencies like DARPA, Space Development Agency, the Missile Defense Agency. How do those things ultimately get transferred to the services? That can be trouble. That can be a, a problem. Um, another option uh, I point out in the paper is you could actually designate a functional combatant command for JADC2 hmm. uh, in the SOCOM model, where you give it acquisition authority right. as well. Uh, now that's going to be COCOMs tend to be much more near term focused. COCOMs don't typically uh, don't have a history of managing large acquisition programs. SOCOM does some smaller stuff, uh, but these would be some pretty large multi-billion dollar programs we're talking about. Um, but it does give you a natural way to tap into, you know, real warfighter requirements uh, and start moving quickly because they're going to have such a near-term focus. Uh, and as if you make it a functional command, um, you know, then that could be the central, you know, go-to place, kind of like Transcom. If, if you're doing a real-world military operation, you need some transportation logistics, you go to Transcom, right? And they, they right. support you. You could have a, a COCOM like that for JADC2 that, you know, you go into a fight, you need battle networks. They're the ones who provide it for you. Um, so that, that's a, you know, totally different model way of thinking about it. Um, you could also designate, uh, instead of doing all this, you could designate a lead service. Uh, now, you talk about unnatural, um, pick one of the services, like, you know, picking, you know, the favorite among your children, uh, pick one of the <laughs> services and say, everyone else, you got to follow what they're doing. They're the lead for this. Um, that would be incredibly unnatural. Uh, and in the past, you know, 70 years since Key West hadn't really worked that well. Um, uh, well, but but I'm, I mean, I will tell you that, right? I mean, the army is the ammunition, right? I mean, we, we've we've done this. Obviously, the Air Force has been trying to do this for some time uh, with with uh, some resistance, uh, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, the lead service approach uh, has worked before, right? I mean, the, the Air Force is the rocketry service, uh, for example, right? Or the space launch service. Not uh, anymore. Even, even though the other services. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's true, right? I mean, and, and it's it's become Space Force, right? Um, yeah. But um, but but I mean there there are clear cultural problems uh, with with trying to do that. What yeah. what is a reasonable right? I mean if we look at the rate at which I mean first of all I don't think anybody who's uh, uh, really paid any attention to this is surprised at all about the the speed with which China is is moving. They're moving almost exactly at the speed we had expected them to. Right? I mean so this yeah. note that this is a Sputnik moment is just a lot of baloney. I mean, we we knew they were working on this. They wrote about working on this. They have shown this in their parades that they're working on, on this capability. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not really a, a, a surprise. What is a reasonable interval 
because you know the United States has been able to do great things on short turnarounds when it sets its mind and says, okay, this is a priority and we have to move, uh, right? And we are getting at that point. I mean, I think Frank Kendall's statements at AFA were as pretty um, forceful about us being out of time. And we have since heard others across the enterprise, whether it's a Mark Milley or a John Hyten, uh, and we've, we've, we've heard uh, Secretary Austin uh, speak along similar, similar lines. What, what is the time interval we have to try to get this right? Because not getting this right actually weakens our deterrent ability to put it bluntly. It does, absolutely. And I think that the timeline we need to be thinking about is less than five years. Uh, that we've got to get a lot of these problems fixed within the next five years. Um, and you know, to kind of underscore the point, battle networks are more important. They're more critical to enabling our military operations than they are to China because we're playing in a way game, right? And right. what we've seen China focus on is how they can disrupt our battle networks, how they can blind, dazzle, confuse our sensors, how they can disrupt our communications, uh, corrupt our decision-making processes, uh, and you know, get inside our OODA loop uh, and be able to make decisions and change operations faster than we can respond. Um, so China knows we need battle networks more than they do, and they just need to disrupt ours. Uh, we've got to fix that. We've got to build more interoperable, more diversified, more distributed mesh networks uh, that are, are just more resilient. Um, and, and we've got to get moving fast. So, you know, I think we need to start seeing real capabilities, you know, rolled out to the force on, in large scale within a couple of years. Uh, and we need to be very far along uh, by the five-year mark. And um, what's the balance of, right? I mean, there are those who say, look, we have an enormous amount of existing infrastructure. Let's just figure out how to connect them. Uh, on the other hand, you have folks who say, look, we've got to scrap large parts of whatever it is we have in the inventory in order to get there. And then there is a third debate on top of this, which is the, I'm frustrated with heritage contractors. They're not delivering, so I should go to commercial industry. Then there's the other concern. Well, if we go to commercial industry, they may not be as, as secure, for example, as, as, the, as the heritage guys. What's, what's the, the balance here we need? And do we actually need to, is it cheaper for us to actually mm -hmm. scrap a lot of what we've acquired for new stuff if we want to try to get there, right? How much of this can just get adapted? Yeah, so in five years, even in 10 years, the vast majority of the platforms, uh, major weapon systems in our inventory are going to be things that are in the inventory today. Uh, and so the, the idea of scrapping old systems and replacing them with new, it's not practical and we don't have time. Uh, so whatever we build, and I talked about this in part one of the paper, whatever we build has got to be backward compatible. Uh, it's right. got to integrate with our existing weapon systems. You can call them legacy. That becomes a loaded word. But, you know, the things that are in, in, relevant, in our inventory relevant, today. Relevant is the new word. Yeah, relevant. <laughs> but the things that we have in our inventory today have to be part of this network. You can't just go off and build, you know, weapon systems and JADC2 systems that connect them that only work for new systems. 
that's not going to work. We got to leverage what we already have in the inventory because we've got to move fast. Todd, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on. Look forward to having you on again uh, soon on this or any other uh, topic. And in fact, you guys uh, have another report and we look forward to having Bob Hale on uh, on, on how to get better on uh, financial management. Yeah, I highly recommend Bob's Hale report uh, going in detail on uh, the budget execution process. And I'll tell you, it even has references going all the way back to how things worked under Alexander Hamilton. Uh, it, it is a fascinating read. And we will absolutely uh, have Bob uh, on the program. Todd, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and FinContieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And joining us now is my old friend, Heidi Grant, the director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency that oversees some 15,000 uh, foreign military sales contracts valued at more than $620 billion, sales that help allies and partners improve their capabilities to advance uh, U.S. and allied collective security uh, goals. After a three-decade government career, she will be retiring later this month to join the Boeing team. So lucky Boeing. Heidi, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for this opportunity, Vago. Uh, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. This has been a long time coming, so I'm glad that we're having this opportunity uh, to talk, albeit uh, as, a, as an exit interview. Uh, you've had a distinguished career. It started in the Navy. Uh, you then worked in international programs and then uh, joined the Air Force, uh, where you did Air Force uh, International, which was a, a critical job. And then last August, you took this uh, job, becoming the current, uh, excuse me, I should say in August 2020. Uh, to become the first civilian to, to hold this uh, post. Throughout that time, you've built a reputation as somebody who's been able to get things, uh, big things done and to get them done fast. And, and those are things, skills that are at a premium right now. What is it that the last 30 years has taught you that you think are illustrative at a time when the department is trying to move, move faster and get big things done quickly? Well, I think my, my biggest leadership lesson has been to first go in and talk to my bosses on what is their priority? What, you know, make sure I clearly understand the mission. Then what I do is I take that and I go out and talk to all the stakeholders of that organization. And I look at like, what's going well, what would they not change? Kind of the roots of the organization. And then what are those things, kind of the low hanging fruit and then, you know, longer term things that need to be changed to make an organization more effective uh, and efficient and really just, you know, build and enhance the stakeholder experience. Then what I do is I take that information and look at, is there an organization changed or any type of transformation that's needed? In addition to that, at the same time, put together some strategic goals. No organization can move forward if you don't have five-year goals and annual objectives. And that's what I've done in every organization that I've led. And it's really worked out well. And then parallel to that is I go around and ask the people on the team, you know, do you feel value added? Are you in the right job for your skill sets? And try to do skill set matches and find the right people and put them in the right places on the team. Um, I, I think that that last point, I think people really underestimate the importance of having the right people in the right jobs, because if you get that right, life is very easy. If you get that wrong, life is very hard. Um, we are in 
a, a massive uh, transformation. We're, we're shifting from two decades of counterinsurgency and counterterror operations. Those will remain important, but shifting much more to a great power mo mode. Although I will say that in your last job at Air Force International, there was an enormous focus on great power uh, capabilities that began some time ago. What's the approach that we need as we make this transformation? Because each ally and partner has a whole series of different objectives and we with them have different objectives that we want to try to achieve in terms of bolstering their capabilities. Well, I think, you know, Vago, we're already on a great path to get after that. And that is there's much more focus on building a strategy for security cooperation to build and prioritize and build capable partners and allies. So that effort is already on. And I think many have heard me talk about this Team USA approach. And that's what is needed and that is what's happening right now. The collaboration between not only interagency, government interagency, but with US industry is better than I've ever seen it. And if we wanna be the partner of choice and make sure we have capable allies, not only to meet US national security needs, but global security needs, that is what's needed is a strategy, an integrated approach. And you know, my, my dream has always been that we spend as much time doing security cooperation strategy and planning with our partners and allies as we do planning for a potential response to a conflict. Um, that's right, because, uh, right, I mean, ultimately, when you work on a strategic level with allies and partners, they have that long-range capability as opposed to doing much, much uh, shorter range uh, in investing. And we're seeing this administration working uh, in a little bit longer strategic cycle with some of our allies and partners, whether it's Japan, Australia, and others. Obviously, there's the uh, AUKUS uh, arrangement uh, as well. Uh, periodically and, and on regular intervals, the United States is accused, even by its close allies, of being an unreliable partner. We saw talk like that surface, for example, in the wake of the Af Afghanistan withdrawal. How do you counter uh, folks who, who make that accusation as somebody who's been working this issue for decades? Well, I would say the United States is the most reliable partner. We are the partner of choice. Our allies and partners want the U.S to have the most capable military in the world and they wanna be part of our coalition. And the reason why is because our values-based approach and it includes commitments to our allies and partners for the long haul. It's not a transactional relationship, it's a relationship for the long haul. And I think that's what sets us apart from our strategic competition. So in addition to the Team USA approach that we put in place for our security cooperation community, integrating our interagency and our industry partners all towards the same goal and building partner capability capacity. The other thing that we put in place, not only in DSCA, but across the security cooperation community is what we call the partner culture. And partner, the word partner, the letters of that stand for the seven values of the security cooperation community. And it's to be proactive, it's to be accountable, it's to be respectful, it's to be transparent, networked, empowered, and representative. That has made a significant difference along with the Team USA approach. The, the past 15 years in the arms uh, export 
a relationship between government and industry has been one of steady improvement and steady progress, right? I mean, I, you and I remember those acrimonious off the record meetings, and now it, it's become much more of a partnership. How do we work together? You know, what are government uh, responsibilities? What are industry responsibilities? And indeed, um, you know, arms sales and cooperative ventures with allies and partners have increased as a result. This new administration is looking at uh, a fundamental reassessment uh, with human rights much more at the center. And I think everybody believes human rights are important, but we also acknowledge that not all of our allies and partners have the human rights records that we would like. What's the right balance going forward? Uh, because there are some who've, who've sort of made this connection that your departure is timed uh, with the administration's new, new policy. Ultimately, what's the right balance here as somebody who works, who's, who's spent decades at that very intersection? Yeah, Vago, I've, I've worked for every administration over the last 32 years of my career and no way uh, is my uh, departure political and I'll address that in a minute. As far as human rights, you know, this has been something that has been important to every administration as far as the DSCA leadership here. We've, it's not something new to us. I can tell you, you know, the last 20 years, this is a discussion that I've had during my bilateral engagements with partners that if I'm gonna be able to be an advocate with those that have oversight of technology transfer, that human rights is, is really important. That along with making sure they protect that equipment that we transfer. They need to be a trusted partner and they need to be in line uh, with our values. Now, many of these countries that we transfer technology to, they may not, everybody's at a different level of where they are in human rights. But to me, it's, do they have the will? Are they on the path where our country would like them to be aligned with our values? And that's what I look at when I have a relationship with these countries and a discussion with them. And I look at where many of these countries, how they've accelerated you know, the improvements just in the last handful of years has been remarkable. And that needs to be acknowledged. And, and what's the right policy going forward that balances uh, these two interests, right? I mean, there's a lot that the new administration is looking at uh, ultimately. Some are, some are process things, some are administrative things, uh, some are policy things. What, what, what's, where, where do you think we end up with the new arms export policy? Well, I can't say where it's going to end up because it's still under review. But what I love about the U.S. system of oversight, our bureaucracy, is that a discussion can be had. A policy can be out there, but it's a case-by-case -case basis. There might be uh, a, heavy, a heavier need to look at our global security over uh, policy concerns. I mean, it depends. And I think that's what's exciting about this as discussion is happening. No matter what the policies are, we have an opportunity to have a debate and make sure that whatever decision is made is in our best national security interests. Um, uh, two uh, last questions. Uh, you were the first uh, civilian uh, in the job. Historically, it's a three-star military job. Um, there were folks who thought that it sent a very positive signal to have a civilian in the job. What's the case to be made 
for a civilian to succeed you? Well, I was excited to learn that uh, when I announced my retirement, that a job announcement went out uh, to look for another career uh, DOD civilian uh, to come in, fall in behind me. Um, but in the meantime, this organization is in very capable hands with Jed Royal as the acting director. It's part of the reason why I feel like I'm able to go on uh, and retire. But as far as I can tell you some of the positive experiences I've had, um, one, this was the easiest transition I've ever had to a new role. I've been in the business for a couple of decades. I've been equivalent to a general officer uh, since 2002. So you figure 19 years serving as an SES. So I'm not sure that that's, you know, the level of experience and background that, um, you know, I'll just leave it that I, I think that's the advantage that a civilian can bring. Um, I also think I've found not only in this job, but as staff IA, that oftentimes I'm able to get more access to our partners and allies because I'm not wearing a uniform. I'm not an operator. They're willing to talk to me about where they may be vulnerable and where they need to build their capabilities. So this is something I think is an advantage that a civilian has. And then also at this level, majority of the people I'm working with are civilians, Minister of Defense, or who I'm talking to, head of armaments directors in many countries are civilians. So the civilian to civilian uh, has really been beneficial and I think it's been successful over the last, during my term here. Uh, and and last uh, uh, question, you know, when you, when you retired, it caught some by uh, surprise and certainly to hear that you were going to go to Boeing. Why Boeing and why now? I can tell you uh, internal, my leadership were very aware that I was eligible to retire actually in May. Um, so I've actually uh, served beyond where I could have retired, um, but I felt it was really important to see through uh, the transformation that I was putting in place to make sure that they got to, you know, full operational capability. And as I mentioned, the very first question you asked, I wanted to make sure I had the right leadership team in place that they could just lead on. So that's the reason why, why now. It's the right time. And as far as, uh, you know, why Boeing, you know, I just uh, feel that there's a lot that I can bring uh, to that company based on my background and experience. Um, and I'm just, I'm excited. I feel like I can continue to serve my passion for national security and global security in that role. Heidi, uh, it's been uh, great working with you in the government. Fairwinds following seas. Look forward to working with you uh, in your new guys uh, and all, all the very, very best uh, to you and yours. Well, thank you for this opportunity, Vago, and thanks for getting good news out. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.